Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, October 21st. Today, the latest on vaccine trials, why it's still so hard to get an N95 mask, and the debate gets a mute button. Last week, the U.S. reported over 60,000 new coronavirus infections in one day. It was the first time since the summer that the number of new infections has reached that high of a level. Infection rates have spiked in the West and the Midwest, and even in places like New York and Massachusetts, where we seem to have the spread of COVID under control, infections are growing. It's a trend that underscores a dire warning that we've been hearing from public health officials for months, that we likely have a very rough winter ahead of us. But the news is not all so bleak. Amid the chaos and tumult, there has been this bright spot, which are the vaccines that are being developed. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. This whole quest began in January, and people started talking then about having vaccines in record time. But I think a lot of people were skeptical because vaccine development takes years, usually, many years, maybe a decade. And instead, what we have seen is that even though a lot of things have gone wrong, this scientific quest has really marched forward at this just steady and very fast rate. And we're going to get our first glimpse of data in the coming weeks, probably. And is there a sense that the results from these first few vaccine trials, that they are going to be at least encouraging, that they have seen some signs that this is something that is working? Well, we only have very early studies of small groups of people, and those have been encouraging. They show the vaccines trigger a kind of immune response that we think could be protective against infection. But the reason we have to do these giant trials with 30,000 plus people in them for each vaccine is to see whether they actually protect people because a lot of vaccines look good and then do not protect people. Like you can't tell until you actually look, were people who received the vaccine less likely to get infected and to get severely ill than people who didn't get the vaccine. And one of the reasons the U.S. has invested in so many different vaccines from different companies using all kinds of different technologies is because they are banking that like some of them might not work and we might have many fewer vaccines than we actually invested in. But we've also heard a couple of reports in the past few weeks related to some pharmaceutical companies having to put a pause on their vaccine trials because of an unexplained illness among one or some of the participants. What is that all about? And is that something that people need to be worried about? Well, people shouldn't worry because that's 
a good sign that the process is working, that we aren't going to approve an unsafe vaccine. The reason those pauses happen is because there's a signal in the trial and they have to do a very thorough investigation to see, is there any reason to think it could be linked to the vaccine? So people shouldn't be worried about an individual pause and we have to wait to see what they find. So we're still waiting for that with two companies right now, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. However, it's not a good sign when trials are paused because it does mean there's some kind of signal we have to investigate. And then when we do start to see these results in the next couple of weeks of how these vaccine trials have gone, if there is a sign that some of these vaccines are effective and if they do meet a a certain scientific threshold of effectiveness, what happens after that? Is that immediately like, okay, it's done, like we're ready, we're going to start mass producing this thing and giving it out to everybody? Or are there other steps that have to happen before this is something that can be provided to the public? Well, there are many steps involved. The first thing that will happen is the vaccine trials move forward based on how quickly people get sick in the trial. So once there are a certain number of cases of COVID in the trial, an independent board can look at the data and they can look beyond a firewall that protects you from knowing who got the vaccine and who didn't get the vaccine. Because the people who roll up their sleeves and volunteer for these trials don't know if they're getting the real vaccine or a placebo. And so once these boards can look at that data, they can then look to see, are there fewer cases of infection in the people who got the vaccine? If that board thinks it's good to go, they can recommend to the company to submit like an application to the FDA to get some kind of authorization. And it's very likely that these first authorizations will be for really narrow subsets of the populations, the people most Mm. at risk. So you're talking about potentially elderly people, frontline workers, healthcare workers. But also, it's a reflection of the fact that we aren't going to have enough doses for the entire American population. In the beginning, it'll be given to a, a smaller segment of the population, and then it'll be gradually expanded both as the data will probably continue to accrue from the trials, which would support, you know, potentially a broader approval. And then also there'll just be more doses. Operation Warp Speed, the administration's effort to speed up the availability of vaccines, has estimated there could be enough vaccine for 100 million people by about the January timeframe. Of course, there are some uncertainties there. But there will very quickly after that time frame be other vaccines that, you know, we still have to know whether or not they work, but those are also being scaled up already. So we're going to see stages where there will be a first cohort of vaccines, then perhaps a second wave of vaccines. And the scale up of production for all of these vaccines is already going on. And then what about treatments for COVID for people who are already infected? Are we seeing improvements in that or developments? Well, one of the improvements in treatments has been experience, but there has been a lot of progress on testing particular class of drug called monoclonal antibodies, which are laboratory-made antibodies. They kind of mimic what your immune system does. So those treatments are hopeful because they have shown promise in doing something the treatments so far haven't done. So far, most of the treatments have been aimed at hospitalized patients, trying to help people survive who are very sick. Monoclonal antibodies are being tried early in the disease, and the hope is that they could prevent people from progressing to severe disease. Because one thing that could really change the pandemic is a treatment 
that could give people confidence that if they did get sick, they were not likely to get extremely sick. They were not likely Mm -hmm. to end up in the hospital. Not everyone's going to be magically protected all at once when we have a successful vaccine. We're still going to need really good treatments because people will continue to get sick, both because vaccines typically don't prevent 100% of disease. Look at flu, for example. We also aren't going to be able to give the vaccine to everyone at once. And there will be people for whom the vaccine doesn't work as well. So we're going to need a bunch of tools. And what's interesting about that is that it seems like there are all these different parts to the puzzle of actually making a potential vaccine effective in ending this pandemic. But then there's also this idea of getting people to trust in this vaccine. And I wonder how that part of it is going in terms of the public health messaging to get people to trust in this process and to trust what comes out of it. That is probably going to be one of the trickiest parts of getting a vaccine out into the world. What you're talking about the public health messaging, who should be prioritized, persuading people who may be hesitant because they've heard about all the politics swirling around the vaccine, that's going to be a huge issue. And it's still kind of unclear how that's going to be managed because so much has gone on between the White House and the agencies that would typically be kind of spearheading this sort of thing that it's a little bit unclear who the spokesperson is going to be that the American public really trusts. And then there's going to be the challenge of individual physicians who are going to have to help people understand how to get this vaccine. It's going to be all hands on deck in terms of building confidence. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was really worried because my mom is a nurse and it was pretty unclear for a little while kind of what protection she had and when she would get to wear this mask called an N95. My name is Jessica Contreras and I am a reporter on the local enterprise team. And an N95 is different than just kind of the regular cloth mask that you and I wear most of the time. It's actually called a respirator. And it works really well to protect people from the virus. And it just kind of blew my mind that this mask that costs like a dollar basically is going to be the thing that makes or breaks whether or not my mom could become infected. I think it's helpful to just like understand how these masks work because, you know, we've been talking about N95 since the beginning of the pandemic and and about the role that they play in hospitals and how they're the only thing that is really the level of intensity that you need if you're going to actually be dealing with COVID patients. But I don't think I actually understand like how an N95 mask works or what the name even means. Yeah, that's a great question. It's important to point out that there are all different kinds of respirators, right? The full face piece elastomeric respirator, tight fitting full face piece papper, an airline respirator, the self-contained breathing apparatus or SCBA. This respirator is truly self-contained. 
So you might have seen the ones that look like, you know, astronaut hoods. There are also half-mask pappers, as well as pappers that have a helmet or hood. Or the ones that look like gas masks. Those can work really well, but they're really heavy and they're really hard to be using all the time. And so what happened is the manufacturing industry for mining back in the 1960s Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company of St. Paul said we want to make a really lightweight version of this respirator. We want to protect people and let them be somewhat comfortable. And so they invented what we now call the N95, which is like a version of a disposable respirator. You may hear someone refer to a respirator as an N95 or a P100. N means not resistant to oil. The second part of the classification, the number... So the number 95 means that when particles are coming at the mask, in this case, virus-filled particles, 95% of those kinds of particles get trapped by this mask. Filters that remove at least 95% of these particles are given a 95 rating. It has what they would call a really high filtering efficiency. It's Mm -hmm. super, super protective if it's fitted on your face the right way. But why is it that these masks and the the weave of what's in them is so much more effective than, you know, if you were just wearing like a cotton cloth mask? Like if it's filtering, what's the difference between the ways that these masks filter that make such a big difference? So when you look at the mask, it looks like it's made out of a kind of fabric, right? Like a cotton or something like that. To us, it, it looks like a solid mat, right? Mm-hmm. That's Nicole McCullough. She's an occupational safety and health leader at 3M. But it's not. If you look at a microscope, there's huge gaps between these fibers. The N95 looks like basically like a bunch of like crazy spaghettis, like <laughs> noodles, like all mashed on top of each other. So imagine that. But there's so many of them that what it does is it creates... Um, an obstacle course for the particles. Uh And so the particles have to wind their way through this confusing mat of these Mm -hmm. fibers. Mm -hmm. And once they get attached, they don't come back off. They Mm -hmm. are stuck. And the other thing that's really important about these fibers is that they're electrostatically charged. How do the fibers get charged? Ah, when we make the fibers, they're made with polymers, Mm -hmm. but we also put extra additives into the polymers that help them hold the charge Mm -hmm. through a lot of conditions. So they actually work like a magnet to trap the particles, to reach out and grab these particles and attach them to the fibers and make sure that they can't Mm -hmm. get through. So that's what makes the filter inside an N95 mask so powerful. That is actually pretty amazing. I know, right? But it's something that's so important right now because the whole industry is trying to figure out, you know, if this is how we make this super powerful filter, how do we do this in a way where more and more people can make these special filters? Well, that's the thing that I think so many people have been trying to understand since the beginning of the pandemic is that if these are masks that are 
are basic enough to produce that they end up costing just a dollar a pop, so they can't be that complicated. Why is it that it's still so difficult to get a hold of them and that we're still facing the shortage? So there's kind of two sides to that question. The first answers to that question happened before the pandemic, right? Were we prepared? Did we have enough of these N95 so that we could make it through this situation? And the the super established answer at this point is no, no, absolutely not. Because the United States had a what we call the strategic national stockpile. And in 2009, during the H1N1 outbreak, we depleted 85 million N95s from that stockpile and we never replaced them. And there are so many missed opportunities where public health officials and people said, this is going to be a major problem. And mm-hmm. people didn't step up in, in both administrations. You can look at the Obama administration and the Trump administration and see where this problem went ignored for so long. But even once the pandemic started and we knew that we were going to need these N95s, there are a lot of choices that could have been made to increase production uh, even more than, than we've already done. Once the pandemic started, the industry that makes these respirators, it started ramping up majorly, right? So uh, you have a company like 3M that has gone from making 22 million N95s in a month to making, soon they'll be making 95 million N95s in a month. But there are only a handful of big companies who make these respirators. And while a lot of organizations that represent nurses and doctors and unions have asked the federal government to get way more involved, become more hands-on, use what's called the Defense Production Act to increase production with those companies and convince new companies to start making N95s and the filters inside them, the Trump administration has been, for the most part, fairly hands off. They've used the DPA some, but not a ton. And what that means is that the N95 market is still being dominated by those same handful of companies. And even those companies, even 3M told us, we're doing as much as we possibly can, but we know that the demand is going to outstrip what we can supply for the foreseeable future. Hmm. So when you say that there's only a limited number of of places in the U.S. that have the ability right now to be able to make N95 masks in mass, what is the barrier to just more people getting that capability? I mean, is it the kind of thing where like if I just bought uh, a couple of the right machines that I could start pumping them out in my basement or that we could have a bunch of different factories starting to make these these masks if there was some coordinated effort to get them to do that? So to make that machine that makes that special filter, that can take six months. There's an agency called NIOSH. They give the official stamp of approval to say, this is an N95. This works as well as it should to protect you. So one of the hurdles is that any new company kind of coming into the market has to get this NIOSH approval. So at the beginning of the pandemic, were there bunches of people rushing in to, you know, spend a bunch of money to make those filters? No, because they didn't necessarily know that we were still going to be in this position six months from now. That it would be a pretty big investment without knowing that there's going to be a payoff in the end. Because in theory, if everything had gotten resolved in a couple months, then there would be no need for as many masks right now. 
Exactly, exactly. And and now that places are getting more involved, you know, it's not just so easy just to buy the machine and be good to go. You know, let's compare this to something like ventilators, right? So remember at the beginning of the pandemic, what we were talking about all the time was this ventilator shortage. And now you don't hear about that. And that's in part because a lot of ventilator companies went to big manufacturers like GM and Ford, and they said, here you go, here's how you make our ventilators. And then it was GM and Ford making ventilators for them. That really hasn't happened with N95s. And part of that is because N95s have to be regulated more. But GM and Ford actually are making versions of N95s. They're just not mass distributing them. They're making them for their own workers and for their own communities. Um, So when it comes to N95s, this crucially important item, there hasn't been the same level of investment and urgency from the government and from corporations that don't already make N95s to get in the game and make sure that we have enough. And um, that brought me to Johns Hopkins Hospital, which is this prestigious medical institution. Hey, everybody. Um, Just pulled up to work. There's this nurse, Kelly Williams, and she is working in the emergency department, seeing COVID positive patients every day. She has an N95, but she re-wears this N95, this mask that you're supposed to throw away after every patient for days and weeks and in some cases months on end trying to conserve her respirator. And ironically, you just get used to it. At this point, my N95 is my second skin. I don't even notice I'm wearing it anymore. I come into work, I put it on, I'm about to do it right now. It's going to smell like coffee. And that's about, you know, it's just my second skin now. I don't even bat an eye wearing it for 13 hours a day. What's so interesting about Kelly is she doesn't have to reuse her mask for months. Hopkins is unusual because they actually had more of a supply than most hospitals do. So what they say is use your mask until it's too worn out or it's dirty and uh, then you can get a new one. But Kelly, she only became a nurse two years ago. She actually used to work in retail. She worked at Under Armour. That's what brought her to Baltimore. So she really understands supply chain. She really understands that these corporations are only going to ramp up so much because at some point the demand for N95s is going to disappear. Yep, because too much inventory is bad for your bottom line. Right, right. Yeah. So she is going above and beyond. Not only is she risking her life to take care of these patients, she is doing everything she can to try to preserve her respirator. So um, she takes super good care of it. She switches it out with sometimes uh, using some of the other more heavy respirators. Um, she does everything she can to try to make hers last. I feel like it's just our new normal. This is a new way we're going to practice. I'm going to be wearing my N95 or my PPE all the time. And this is it for the foreseeable future. It's become my new normal. And so I feel like for me, it's just something that we're going to keep trucking through. Um, And I'm just, I'm so grateful to have something that keeps me safe so that I can keep my family safe. So then for, for people like Kelly, is there any reasonable chance that things are going to change for them in terms of getting access to more of these masks or making people not feel like they have to reuse these masks for months on end? Or 
six months from now, are we still going to be looking at the same supply chain problems and dealing with the same shortage? So things are getting better, right? So the the more time that passes, the more of those investments that companies have made to be able to make N95s are up and running, the more approvals that NIOSH has, so more people are making N95s, things are getting better. But the big question mark here is, you know, how long are we going to need N95s? How long is it going to be that Kelly's wearing one every day that she goes into work? The, the reason why that question matters so much is because that's what, you know, comes down to that sort of basic thing that we all learned in economics of like supply and demand, right? We don't know how long the demand is going to last here. We don't know how long the pandemic is going to last. And so what a lot of these companies that make N95 say is we need to know that the demand is going to stay. That doesn't mean they want the pandemic to keep going. It means that they want the government, the federal government to say, we're going to buy these respirators from you. Make as many as you can. We'll buy them from you. If the pandemic's over and we don't need them anymore, we'll put them in our stockpile so we're ready to go. But so far, they feel like they haven't gotten enough of those guarantees. And the fact that we still have this shortage means that, you know, if we don't have enough N95s for healthcare workers, everybody else is out of luck. I mean, I think most Americans just don't even consider, oh, I could wear an N95. They think those are for healthcare workers. And that's true because right now we need all the N95s we have to go to healthcare workers. But there could be a world in which we fix the N95 shortage for healthcare workers and then other people who need them who are potentially going to be exposed to the virus, perhaps because they're going into a classroom or they're going into a meatpacking plant or they drive a bus, could safely get access to a reliable N95 and know that at least while they have that on, if it's fitted properly, that they're a lot more protected from the virus than they were before. Jessica Contrera is a reporter at The Post. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing. On Thursday, President Trump and Joe Biden are going to have their final televised debate in Nashville. It'll be just 12 days before Election Day, and they're going to be talking about a range of issues from national security to COVID-19 to race in America to climate change. My name is Amy B. Wang, and I'm a campaign reporter for The Post. There were originally three scheduled debates, and in the first debate, it was, I think it's 
fair to describe it as a hot mess. The candidates, specifically Donald Trump, talked over each other frequently. Vote and let your senators know how you strongly you feel. Court? Let vote now. Are you pack the Make court? sure. My colleague Aaron Blake actually tallied the interruptions, and there were something like 90 plus interruptions, one per minute. And Trump was responsible for about three quarters of those. Will you shut Who is up, man? Listen. The moderator, Chris Wallace, wasn't really able to do anything about it. And it was basically unwatchable. And there was supposed to be a second debate. But what happened after the first one is Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19 and actually hospitalized for several days. So the debates commission said that they were going to change the format of the second debate out of an abundance of caution to a virtual one. Well, Trump and his team said that they were not at all interested in a virtual debate and pulled out of what should have been the second event. So the Debates Commission is really hoping that this debate, what should have been the third debate, but I guess technically is the second one, goes much better than the first one. And the biggest change is that this is going to feature a mute button for the first time. And this time, for the first two minutes, uh, the opening two minutes of each candidate's remarks, their opponent's mic will be muted. The debates commissioner is saying this is not technically a rule change. They're just enforcing a rule that the candidates had agreed to originally. And the remaining 11 minutes of each segment, once you get past the first four, will still be open mic. And so there could still be a lot of crosstalk. But this way, it'll be a little bit more watchable, hopefully. Heading into this last debate, Biden leads Trump by 11 percentage points nationally. And this is actually a gap that has stayed fairly steady, according to our polls and other polls, despite a pretty tumultuous race. And so I think Trump has the most to gain from a good performance. His advisors are trying to get him to interrupt less, to let Biden talk more, um, to come across as less rude. And the question of whether or not anybody might actually change their minds you know, I'm just not sure. It's it's really remarkable to think about undecided voters. I think a lot of people feel that way. I did talk to several before the first debate, and they said they were eager to watch the candidates engage with one another, and that didn't happen. I followed up with them afterwards, and they said they were just really discouraged by what a what an uncivil mess it was. So to the extent that anything matters anymore, I, I'm not sure. But I think everybody is eager to see if this third debate goes at least better than the first one. Amy B. Wang is a national politics reporter for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Voting is already underway in the 2020 election, and getting good information is more important than ever. This is a great time to subscribe to The Washington Post, so you can stay on top of everything that's happening. We have a special offer just for our listeners. You can get access to The Post online for a whole year for just $29. Go to postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.